Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to 2 Kings 13. 2 Kings 13, we'll begin at verse 14 and conclude at verse 21. We wrap up today a, a 15 sermon series on what I call Thus Saith the Lord. It was, it had to do with the prophets of God who stood in Israel <clears throat> and voiced what God would have them say. You and I now have a book to, uh, that's recorded what God would have said. Um, but in the Old Testament, it was through prophets. And these men stood in, in the place of God and said things that God wanted said. So today's the last of those as we wrap up the life of Elijah and Elisha. Verse 14. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the window window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the Lord's era of victory, the era of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now, bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that endures forever. Guys, one of my heroes is a guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon. You might know that name. He was a Baptist pastor in London, uh, died in, I don't know, 1898 or so. But uh, as a part of his ministry, he developed a seminary. And I want to say that the seminary was called Master's College, but I I could be wrong about that. But he had a seminary, and and he was one of the professors on the faculty there, and he would... um, He would give lectures to the students, and those lectures were compiled and put in a book and entitled Lectures to My Students. (laughs) Pretty original name. And that's what this is. This is a book of lectures of Spurgeon to his seminary students there in the 19th century. And there's a lot in here that's profitable for us ministerial types. But one of the things that I've often quoted, maybe you've heard me quote it before, but he, he looks at his students and he says this, Be much at deathbeds. Be much at deathbeds. I think what he is pointing to is that there is a lot to be learned. There's a lot of ministry to be had when you're with people who are facing eternity in the next few hours. I know this, that some of my, I don't know whether it's my best thinking or my clearest thinking, some of my, maybe it's my most troubling thinking, has gone on in cemeteries. 
Um, I can tell you about several. I won't, but um, if you've been around here a long time, you remember the first time Susie and I ever visited Vienna, Austria. We um, we got up the first morning and we were just dumb tourists and we got on a, a tram and we didn't even know where it was going. But we just got on it and thought we'd ride and see some of the city and, and um, ended up uh, at a place that we didn't even know we were going to and and uh, discovered that it was quite a tourist hotspot. It was the city cemetery. And so we got off the tram and went inside and, and really it was a moving uh, couple of hours and we saw the, the grave sites of uh, Beethoven, um, Schubert, uh, Sigmund Freud. And that was the first time that I had had that thought about that dash. You know the dash that's in between the year of birth and the year of death? Thinking that that dash is the only thing that summarizes my life. Everything that I did, everything I was, everything that would happen, right in that little dash. And and I came back and uh, did a series of sermons called The Dash. And I wasn't talking about a run. I was talking about that little thing that's going to be on the tombstone that is in between the year I was born and the year I died. Because that's it. My whole life is summarized by a dash. I say all of that to say this, guys. This passage that I just read you from verses 14 to 21, it's a, it's a, it's a deathbed scene. Elisha's dying. He ultimately dies. He's buried. And then you get that weird little story in there <laughs> that we're going to look at a little bit uh, about the man who came back to life and but it seems to me that there's a couple of, I don't know, um, observations that might be noteworthy about this passage. The, the, a couple that I hope will be profitable for us. One has to do with the influence of, the, uh, of a righteous man's life. The other has to do, I mean, the other takes us really to the heart of the gospel, which I always enjoy doing. So that's the two things I'm just, I, just, I want to talk to you about. The influence of a righteous man which you can see in a couple of ways in this passage. And then I want to show you how I think this passage can take us right into the to the heartbeat of the gospel. Let's talk first about the influence of a righteous man. Uh, you see it in a couple of ways in the text. The first thing that you the, the first way you see it is in the fact that the king visits the prophet. <laughs> I, I, I'm saying this, guys. Um, kings don't visit prophets. It was it was unusual for a king to visit a prophet. Actually, for a king to visit anybody, especially if that anybody was sick, and then to have the king cry over him, why? I mean, that's that's unprecedented. Prophets visit kings. Kings don't visit prophets. Uh, prophets cry out to kings, but kings don't cry out to prophets. But what I think it's pointing us to, guys, is is the influence that Elisha had over his over his nation. The fact that the king pays him a visit. Because apparently, Elisha had left quite a mark on the king of Israel. What the king's motives were, I don't know. Uh, uh, maybe they had something to do with the fact that um, he fears the Syrians, and he fears that if Elisha dies, then there will be no more miraculous interventions like we found in chapter 7. But to his credit, the king seems to realize that in, in times like these, 
His best friend is not a soldier. His best friend is not a diplomat or a politician. His best friend is a man who knows God, a man who prays. Elisha had left his mark on the king. How wonderful is that? You know, I want to live a life like that. I want to live a life that when I'm gone, people are sorry that I'm gone. Oh, they they may have laughed at me when I was alive, but I, I want them to be sorry when I leave. Um, you know, even the non-Christian world ought to be able to to notice something different about a life lived by a righteous man. He ought to be able to see some qualitative difference, don't you think? Let me put it to you like this, just in a question. Who do you think will be crying while you're on your deathbed? Who's going to be crying over you when you die? Maybe some family and some friends. But it just seems fitting to me that somehow, the non-Christian would take note of a life that's well lived and be sorry to see us go. That's what you see here. A non-Christian crying over the death of a righteous man. Influence that that man had because of her life, a righteous life, a life that was lived. The, the other way that you see his influence has to do with this um, this strange little event that's at the bottom of the verses 20 and 21. It's, it's, it's almost a comical event. It, uh, let me tell you what happens. Um, this guy's trying to bury his friend. But at that particular juncture, uh, there were marauding bands that would come from Moab and sweep through the country and steal and pillage and burn, etc., etc. So in the midst of trying to bury their friend, this guy, uh, bury his friend, this guy sees one of those, mara- those raiding groups coming towards him. So he throws this body unceremoniously into a grave and runs for his life. He just happened to throw his body into the grave of Elisha. And when that body touched the bones of Elisha, he sprang to life. Now, what do you think God intends for us to know as a result of including that little vignette in here? What is in there? You know, guys, I'm really not that sure, but I I think it's safe to say at least this much. Whatever influence we may have will continue long after we're dead. Your influence doesn't die with you. There's a message that you will leave behind long after the grass is green over the gravesite. In the book of Hebrews it says... He is dead, but he still speaks. That's not the only place that you find something like that, guys. Do you know in the Ten Commandments? Do you remember the the commandment that goes like this? It says, uh, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Don't have any other gods before me because I'm a jealous God. And he goes on to say, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. Remember that? Ladies and gentlemen. 
Some of us are sitting in this room this morning with scars, emotional scars. We're dealing with proclivities. We're dealing with emotional illnesses. We're dealing with dysfunctions. that are the result of the influence of our parents. Because the message that you have in life lives beyond the day you die. By the way, the text goes on. It doesn't leave us in the negative. It also goes on to say this in verse 6. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Whereas some of us are dealing with scars, emotional scars, that were left on us because of the negative influence of our parents. Others of us have avoided that kind of thing because of the positive influence of our parents. I'm simply saying, guys, there's an impact that you're going to leave behind even though you're long gone. You know, um, when I was in seminary, I was assigned a book to read, kind of interestingly, I think. But I was assigned a book, and the title of the book was Dress for Success. And that was a seminary book that I had to read, or a book in seminary I had to read, Dress for Success. I liked it. It was a good little book. Uh, and basically, the book was saying this, that you're, you're making a statement by the time, kind of clothes that you wear. I mean, if you wear a Nehru jacket or a trench coat, you're making some kind of statement as to the way that you live. Think about that, ladies. You're making a statement. And gentlemen, you're making a statement just by the clothes that you wear. That was the, that was the premise of the book. He goes on in the book to talk about furniture. Particularly, I remember that one illustration was bank furniture. You ever been in a lobby of a bank? Sure you have. You ever noticed the furniture? Ever since that book, I, I always watched the furniture in a bank. You know, it's, it's oak. It's mahogany. It's brown, it's big, it's heavy. Why? Because the bank is trying to send you a message of safety, security, and solidity. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if I'm making a statement by the way I, by my clothes, and I'm making a statement with my furniture, wouldn't it make sense to believe then I'm making a statement with my life? Yeah. The only question that remains is what kind of statement am I making? Do you, you know the name P.T. Barnum? Of course you do. P.T. Barnum was the Barnum and Bailey Circus, you know, um, the famed circus showman. He died at age 82. And the last words out of his mouth were a question. He's on his deathbed, P.T. Barnum, he's dying, he's got, his last words are a question. Here was the question. He wanted to know what the gate receipts were at the show at Madison Square Gardens that night. Now, folks, just knowing that one fact, that's all you need to know. Just to know what, what, what kind of message do you think P.T. Barnum left behind? I'm not saying that the message that he left was one that he made on his deathbed. I'm saying that the, that the deathbed simply reflected the message that he lived out in his life. It, it wasn't a result of the kind of death that he died. It was a result of the kind of life that he lived. Folks, um, the, the, the point 
I'm, I'm, I'm simply trying to make this point that the, the key issue in the discovery of the kind of influence that you're going to have after you die is the kind of message that you have, that you have patched together over an entire life. Whatever that message is, it's going to influence maybe just a few, maybe not a nation, but it's going to influence. Some of them, some of you are going to leave a message behind that's going to that's going to influence negatively. And some of you are going to leave a message behind that's going to influence positively. You know, I run into people, and I run into them fairly frequently, who really want to make a difference with their lives. They they want to do something that is uh, meaningful. And yet so many of them have concluded that the only way that they can leave a message behind is through their career. Um, and so they ask the career to do things for them and with them that used to be assigned to a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's called careerism. It's the idolatry of the career. And many of those people are going to die just like P.T. Barnum. You're going to die like the man in the cats in the cradle, that famous Jim Croce song. When you're coming home, son, I don't know when, but we'll get together then, Dad. Yes, yeah, we'll get together then. That dad made his mark on his son. It wasn't because of the death that he died. It was because of the life that he lived. Guys, fortunately, many of us wake up before then. We need to figure out what it is that we want to say and then go build a life that says it. I think at least part of the takeaway of this strange little story about the man being thrown in Elisha's grave, at least part of the takeaway has to do with this thing about influence after I die. Throughout the ministry of Elisha, his ministry was a source of life and a culture of death. And, and even though the prophets died, Israel could still be saved by, by embracing a prophetic message. A message that was left behind after they died. That brought a positive impact on those who embraced it. I'm saying to you, my brother and sister in Christ, you're going to have an influence. It may not be, but just your family and a few more than that, but you're going to leave behind a message. And I, I think the only question that remains is whether it's going to be a good one or a bad one, a positive one or a negative one, cursing my children or blessing them. Because you do have influence. Now, having said that, let me bring you to what I think is really the heart of the text. 
It has to do with this little event that you see going on with the eras and the bow and eras and all that business. Uh, it's in verses 15 to 19, I think. <clears throat> um, there's just a couple of things that I, I want to draw your attention to about that central event, and then we're done. The first one's real, real quick and real simple. First of all, it's interesting to me that Elisha is working. He's, he's performing a prophetic function even in the last hours of his life. Let me put it in familiar language. He didn't retire. You know, I remember hearing a woman one time stand up and give her, her, um, her kind of her testimony and there was a little, there was a little, maybe there was a lot of bitterness in it, but she said, I taught Sunday school for many years and now it's your turn. I'm finished. Well, you'd have to assume that her experience wasn't real good in Sunday school, you know? But guys, um, where did you get the notion that you can quit? Where did that come from? It didn't come from in here. I mean, the, the word retirement is never even mentioned in this book. And I'm not talking about retirement from the corporate, the corporation. They might kick you out. But in terms of a service to Christ, there's, there's no such thing as quitting. You know, the, the norm used to be you worked until you couldn't work any longer, and then you, your family took care of you until you died. Well, in terms of um, my service to Christ, there's no terminus except when you die. And that's what you see Elisha doing here. But that's not really what I want to draw your attention to. It has to do with this event with the arrows and the bow and all that business. First of all, gang, um, you do understand, don't you, that God often communicates through symbols. He does it in the Old Testament. The New Testament does it in the Old. Uh, for instance, baptism and the Lord's Supper, they're symbols. And you've heard me say they're not only symbols, but they are symbols. There, there are all kinds of other symbols. There's, some of them are, First Kings, where is it, 11 or so, where the prophet Ahijah is told to go out and meet Jeroboam, and he's told to wear a new garment. And he goes to meet Jeroboam and he takes off the new garment and he tears it into 12 pieces. And he turns to Jeroboam and says, take 10 of them. What's he doing? He's saying, because Jeroboam, you're about to be the ruler of 10 tribes of Israel. It's a, it was a symbolic action. You want another one? How about the prophet Isaiah, who was told in chapter 20 to run around the city naked? What was that all about? Well, it was to communicate to the citizens of Israel, that's what that's what's going to happen to you once the Babylonians smush you. All I'm trying to say, guys, is that God often uses symbols to communicate. He's communing, communicating something here symbolically, okay? Now, the question that, the, that Joash has is this. How am I going to be delivered? What about these Syrians? How am I going to be delivered... From the Syrians. His big issue is, how am I going to be delivered? And then Elisha responds to that question by doing this little strange thing with arrows and bows. It's kind of odd, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's almost borders on the irrational, unreasonable. I mean, he does something that doesn't seem to be particularly connected with the question. You know, God does that a lot. He says, um, I want you to paint some blood on the doorpost of your house, and by so doing, you will deliver yourself from the death angel. What? 
What does blood on my doorpost have to do with the death angel? Oh, and by the way, um, I want you to take a pole and I want you to wrap a bronze serpent around it. And then, and, and then tell the people that every time they look at that, they'll be delivered from the poisonous snakes that have just bit them. What? What does a bronze snake on a pole have to do with the poisonous serpent that's biting me? And then, of course, in the New Testament, he says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. What does that have to do? How how is it that the death of a man in outside of Jerusalem... Save me simply by my believing. To the non-Christian world, ladies and gentlemen, that doesn't make a bit of sense. I mean, I'll tell you what makes sense to the non-Christian world. Here's what makes sense. Work hard. Keep your nose clean. Be a good boy. Give money to the United Way and earn it. Earn that deliverance. You know, kind of like Smith Barney. Earn it. That makes sense. That gospel stuff. That's what's nonsensical. But ladies and gentlemen, as you see taking place in this story, once God says something and you don't do it, there's a certain anger involved. Guys, when this book says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, you are now in a crisis of faith. Can I explain that? With a story. It's a story that comes out of Jeremiah 21. Jeremiah goes to the citizens of Jerusalem, and and, and the city is encircled by the Babylonian army and under siege. Jeremiah goes to the citizens of Jerusalem and he says this. This is 21, 8, and 9. You can check it out. He says to them, if you go out to the Babylonians and surrender, you will live. If you stay inside Jerusalem and fight the Babylonians, you will die. And at that moment, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, Everybody who heard him was in a crisis of faith. Do I believe him? Or do I plan my own escape? Do I try to come up with my own terms of deliverance? Do I commence my self-salvation project? Guys, what I'm saying to you this morning is that you are this very moment in a crisis of faith. Who are you going to believe? You're going to believe the Wall Street Journal? Or are you going to believe this book? That's a call you've got to make. And 
you are in a crisis of faith. Which one are you going to use to deliver you? Hmm? Guys, Elisha, Elisha gave life from the grave. But you need to notice this because this is important. His bones remained in the grave. You and I are not going to be saved by any ordinary prophet or any extraordinary prophet for that matter. What you and I need is a prophet who can give life on the other side of the grave by triumphing over the grave by walking out of the grave. And it is Christianity and Christianity alone that offers you a Savior like that. Confucius is still in his grave. Buddha is still in his grave. Mohammed is still in his grave. Now, who or what are you going to believe? That's your call. But I can tell you, you choose to reject the deliverance offered by this God. And it won't only be Elisha that's angry. And the consequences will be dire. Your call. Our Father, I do pray that you will show from this story and from every other story that there is a method of deliverance. And it's the method that you have outlined in the life and death of Jesus Christ. There is no other. That there is only one path of deliverance, and that's through Christ Jesus. And I pray that for those who are seated here, they might recognize the truth in that. But, Lord, they will never see it. It will always be unreasonable and nonsensical until you open their eyes. So, O oh God, have mercy on us and open the eyes and the ears of those who sit here this day. Do that, Father, for the glory of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.